Define for me what is factoring, a metaphor for factoring, if you could. The best real-time current example is credit card usage. Okay. You know, when you, if you have a credit card in your wallet, you have been approved by the issuing bank for a certain credit limit. And they've, they've determined that you're a good risk for them. So every, and every time you scan your card, you slide your card through a, a POS system, they get an approval code. And that's the, say the restaurant or the flower shops, okay to do the transaction because you've been approved as the risk. Now that restaurant or that flower shop has an agreement with their bank or their merchant processing company that they're gonna receive the money in 24 to 48 hours and for that service they pay a fee. They pay a transaction fee, a merchant processing fee. And that's going to that fee is gonna be based on the risk of the transaction or the type of card that you have. In factoring, that's really what we do is we're buying those transactions. We're approving the customer of our client as a good risk, and we're advancing the money for that transaction or that invoice, and we're waiting to be paid. And for that, we receive a fee. fee. This is MOB, Masterminds of Business, and I'm Gerald Johnson. Masterminds of Business is an uplifting and informative show about the accomplishments and the challenges that entrepreneurs and corporate leaders face during their careers. Our guests have mastered the four building blocks of business, processes, people, customers, and resources through hard work and perseverance. During today's show, we will delve into resources with Melissa Donald. We hope you'll be inspired by the tenacity of our masterminds, giving you the courage and the knowledge to conquer the hurdles that you face in your own life and career. Born and raised in Napa Valley, California, Melissa Donald began her career working at a small commercial collections agency. During her time there, she worked in every area of the business, from direct collections to litigation management, and quickly rose through the ranks. In 2001, she took a job with a factoring company in Walnut Creek and rapidly advanced from senior accounting executive to operationals manager and eventually to vice president. In 2007, her and her partner decided to launch their own factoring firm, LDI Growth Partners. She focused her efforts on educating entrepreneurs about the benefits of factoring at the grassroots level. Her story begins shortly after college. Here we go. This is Gerald Johnson, and I'm happy to have Melissa Donald here with me today. And we are going to focus in on resources. So, Melissa, tell me about how you got from college to where you are today in factoring. Well, my first grown-up job coming out of college, I needed a job. I had completely financially screwed myself up by the time I was finished with school. And ironically, my first job was as a secretary in a commercial collection agency. So I was hearing people all day long. (laughs) Irony, irony, irony. (laughs) Yeah, I was hearing people demanding money from folks while I was going home at night and avoiding calls from collection agencies. So, yes, there was a lot of irony in, in that early time, I ended up staying with that company for 11 years. I had only planned to be there for a year. I was going to go back to school. 
I met my husband about that time, and life life plans changed. Life happened. So I went to my boss and told him that I was going to be getting married, and I didn't really want to make all those big changes I had talked about before, and asked if I could basically be promoted into being a collector. And so about a year and a half, two years in, I started as a collector. What kind of collection agency was this? This was straight commercial. Commercial. So we were dealing with the controller, the CFO, or the business owner around vendor bills, workers' comp bills, things like that, rather than someone who wasn't paying their credit card bill. So from the beginning of your career, you were immersed right into the business world on the financial side. Yes. What were the typical claims like at this collection, this commercial collection agency? We had two primary focuses, two two primary markets. We worked with a lot of the workers' comp carriers for premium collection. And then we also were heavily uh, sourced in the restaurant business. Workers' comp collection, what were some of the typical claims? What reason did they come see you? I have, exa- I have lots of examples. All right. In workers' comp, the two primary reasons for uh, premiums to not be paid when due or after an audit was done that there would be a bill left over were either around the issue of subcontractors that workers comp picked up as employees or what they call the clerical exception rule. What's the clerical exception rule? So you have you have your admin person who is in the front office. They're sitting at their desk. The rate for that is going to be much, much lower. The risk is much lower for workers' comp calculation than, say, a roofer or a warehouse person. Because they're sitting at their desk and they're typing on a computer. Exactly. They're going to break their finger. Who knows, right? right? Carpal tunnel is going to be right. one of your, big, your biggest issues you're going to face. If, however, that clerical person, that admin, has to walk through the warehouse to go to the restroom or walk into the warehouse to hand out paychecks, in that moment, they're exposed to the same risk as those warehouse people. And wow. so their their payroll is then calculated at the higher rate. And most people don't know that. And so they go... So they, stop right there. Stop right there. We just gave a nugget. A nugget is if you're out there right now and you have a business and you have a secretary or an admin, somebody in your office, and you expose them to the warehouse just to go to the bathroom or... Just to hand out paychecks, as you said, that makes their whole job now um, at the higher rate for workers' comp. Right. Okay, go ahead, go ahead. This is good stuff now. (laughs) Go ahead, Melissa. This is why we have Melissa on this show today, because she's going to break down this knowledge right here. The, The other biggest issue is around subcontractors. Okay. You know, a lot of people, particularly in construction, they they pick up day labor or they're, they 1099 the people who they bring in to do labor so that they don't have to carry the full payroll burden. And it doesn't work that way with workers' comp. <laughs> if they're exposed to the risk, there's a, there's a well-known list, and I want to say it's 21 questions. 21 questions. That, that you need to answer to determine if someone is an employee or can be a, an independent or a, or a 1099 contractor. One of those is, do as the business owner, do you control their time? Do they have to show up at a certain time, leave at a certain time, or do they control their own time? Do they bring their own tools or their own equipment for the job? If they do, they might be a subcontractor. If they don't, when the audit is done for their workers' comp, they're most likely going to be picked up 
as an employee. And if you're, say, a roofing company or something with a really high rate, all of a sudden you could end up with a $50,000, $100,000 workers' comp bill for all of these people that, as far as the IRS is concerned, you're calling them a subcontractor. Wow, you know, this brings to my remembrance a story that I encountered about a church. So this church had musicians. And so every Sunday they came and they played music for the church. And they also came for rehearsals for the choir, right? And so the, one of the musicians, <laughs> you know, developed carpal tunnel syndrome. But the musician's main gig, main job was as a teacher, now, as he was teaching, when he developed the carpal tunnel from playing the piano, the, the, the school knew that he had a side deal at the church. So when, the, when he put in his claim, he said, hey, they said, hey, wait a minute. You know, we have this guy here. He works, but he also works at the church on Sunday. So why, why shouldn't they have to pay some of this? Well, that caused a little itty-bitty problem. <laughs> It, I'm sure it did. It caused a little itty bitty problem, and and all of a sudden the church was dragged into this carpal tunnel workers comp claim, even though they were paying him as a contractor. And they probably had to go through this list of questions that's put out to determine whether or not they could they could be picked up as an employee. And if they could be picked up as an employee, then the church could be in trouble for either not having workers comp. Or get hit with a bill for everything they were paying those musicians. Uh, there you go. I mean, I know know it all too well. Yeah. So what, what would happen going back to the workers' comp claim in the roofer? Have you ever had an experience like uh, an example where this thing played out that way where, and you got involved? Uh, we had it play out a, a lot of times in a lot of different ways. We did have one case where it was a roofing company, and they were – going and picking up day labor every day at, at Home Depot or Lowe's or wherever they were picking up day labor. And they were they would they were trying to get around them being picked up as employees. And so they had all of these people sign a waiver saying that they were a vice president of the company. Oh gosh. So the auditor went in and picked up all of these people as employees, which right. generated about a $120,000 premium bill. Ugh. And the company said, no, wait, they're all excluded from coverage because they're vice presidents. Wow. And it, um, it ended up not going the way we would have hoped it would go uh, at the end of the day. The, the, the issue and where it was really hard for me was it, if at any point one of those people had fallen off a roof, or, heaven forbid, had died from injuries from being on the job, they had no coverage, and chances are they didn't know they didn't have coverage. You know, it, that's a sombering story, how people, how businesses can try to skirt the law and really harm someone's livelihood or their life. It's a problem. You know, it's kind of scary that a company would do that because, you know, I always believe that we try to operate our businesses with integrity. And if you do that, you will build a long-term business. Now, they might have got away with it that time, but if they're trying to pull those kind of shortcuts, you cannot continually get away with things like that. You, you'll eventually get caught. So anybody who's listening out there, if you have any doubt about whether your employee is an employee or a contractor, this is crucial 
that you answer the 21 questions, some of which is like, do, do you control the time and are you using your own equipment? And it, it's, it's, you can Google that. I don't, I don't want to take our time to just list a whole bunch of questions. Or maybe I will provide a link to 21 questions in the show notes from this show. But that is some of the things that you need to know. You told me a little bit that you also focused on restaurants. We did. We, were, we worked with a lot of food suppliers and restaurant suppliers. What was the biggest problem in restaurants? In, in restaurants, there were two primary issues. One, the margins are really, really slim. You know, restaurants are operating on a shoestring most of the time. Uh, and if you're dealing with perishable items or sell-by dates on items, that can really impact margins and cash flow and ability to pay the bills. One of the other issues, bigger issues that we had was that when the delivery people or sales reps were going in to set up credit accounts, because it's very, very competitive, they were getting personal guarantees sometimes from a busboy or the <laughs> cook. And so from a credit standpoint, when we were then trying to collect the bill two, three, six, nine months down the road, the busboy, how could we hold him to a, a personal guarantee? So the operation side in the, uh, the your client's operational processes of doing their due diligence and making sure the person who's signing has the authority to sign. Yes. <laughs> was, a, was a problem. Absolutely. We've just learned how some businesses end up in collections and what business owners can do to avoid that fate. This is MOB, Masterminds of Business, and I'm Gerald Johnson. This is our seventh episode. And if you like what you hear, write a review and please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. A couple of quick programming notes. If you want to get in touch with us here at MOB, you can reach us at Sabacon Ideas on Twitter and on Facebook. That's S-A-B-A-C-O-N-I-D-E-A-S. Or visit us on the web at sabacon.net forward slash MOB. We like to be inspired to do great things. So if you're a mastermind and have a great story to tell or a question to ask, please reach out. I'm Gerald Johnson, and this is MOB, Masterminds of Business. Coming up, how Melissa avoided disaster after the Great Recession. Okay, you know what I want to do? I want to transition now. I want to go from, you told me kind of a little bit about your history in the commercial collection agency. Tell me about the biggest problem you had to overcome when you started your business in factoring. Tell me what was the biggest problem. Tell me how you got started. What, was the, what do you think is the biggest thing you had to do? I didn't know anything about factoring when I took my first job in factoring. Uh, I knew it had something to do with invoices, but I didn't really understand. I, had, I really didn't know what it was. And so that was challenge number one was I had to learn, and I had to learn very, very quickly what factoring was and how it worked. I, I believe the biggest issue both in factoring, and this even tracks back to collections, is perception. You know, people perceive factoring or a, being a bill collector. You know, those are real conversation killers at a party. <laughs> you know, people go, oh, you know, bill collector. And did, did, did you know I haven't paid my Macy's bill? <laughs> um, and, and a lot of that just comes from not understanding not understanding what it was or what the role is of those industries in the life cycle of a business. Define for me what is factoring, a metaphor for factoring, if you could. The best real-time current example is credit card usage. Okay. 
you know, when you, if you have a credit card in your wallet, you have been approved by the issuing bank for a certain credit limit. And they've, they've determined that you're a good risk for them. So every, and every time you scan your card, you slide your card through a, a POS system, Mm -hmm. they get an approval code. And that's the, say the restaurant or the flower shops, okay to do the transaction because you've been approved as the risk. Now that restaurant or that flower shop has an agreement with their bank or their merchant processing company that they're going to receive the money in 24 to 48 hours. And for that service, they pay a fee. They pay a transaction fee, a merchant processing fee. And that's going to that fee is going to be based on the risk of the transaction or the type of card that you have. In factoring, that's really what we do is we're buying those transactions. We're approving the customer of our client as a good risk. And we're advancing the money for that transaction or that invoice. And we're waiting to be paid. And for that, we receive a A fee. fee. Wow. Okay. So now that we got out there the factoring equals credit card, that, that analogy, tell me now, you started your business. When did you say? What year was that? Um, I came into the industry in 2001. We started LDI Growth Partners uh, January 2007. Okay. So LDI is born in 2007. I know it wasn't all smooth sailing. Did, I mean, did you just rock it to the top? Because let me tell you, LDI Growth Factors is at the top. Did you just rock it there or did you have some bumps in the road? Oh, we had bumps in the road because we thought it would be a really good idea to start our own company right before the economy tanked in, <laughs> in, in this country. And, you know, we had we, my partner and I had worked for another factoring firm. So when that company closed, we picked a few accounts to, to that we bought a couple of accounts to come with us when we started LDI. And as the economy tanked, we mistakenly, in hindsight, mistakenly thought that this would be a good opportunity for us to to onboard good deals that banks were kicking out. Uh, so you were thinking maybe these guys got, you know, credit uh, with the bank. The bank is freezing all the all their credit. And so maybe we can be a substitute. Maybe we can be a substitute. It was it was a viable alternative at the time. We just didn't really track through what all of that risk meant. Okay. So how many deals a pop? Like what how many how many deals did you take on this time? We I was averaging uh bringing on about a client a month, which for a small shop like ours is a lot. Okay. So we were bringing on a lot of deals in in late 2008, 2009 and through part of 2010. And again, in hindsight, half of those ended up being problematic. Wow. So half your business ends up being problematic. What stresses did that bring on your business? Well, you know, we had to wonder what we were doing wrong. Right. So we had to we had to really dig in and go back and analyze why we thought it was good at the time, uh, what went wrong, what we could do differently. Really, though, I believe that the the key piece to why we made we survived that time is because we were transparent. Um, all of our investors were all private investors, and I was completely open with where I had made missteps, uh, where we had misjudged, 
what was happening, um, why we needed to steer clear of certain things in the future. And luckily, my investors, uh, they understood it. They appreciated the transparency and they stuck with us. You know, it's funny. I had a, a, the same example very young when I was working for mobile, very young in my career. I'll never forget it. It like left an impression with me is I was working in a sales region and my boss's boss, we had had a bad month. And mobile sales was a high-pressure deal. You got ranked every day. Everybody knew where they stand across the country. It was unbelievable. The person who was in charge of the East Coast at the time came to the region. And I remember we had made several mistakes. And I was wondering how my boss was going to handle it with his boss. And he turned to his boss and he said, you know, I don't remember his name. Jim McDonald was my boss. So if you're listening, Jim, <laughs> and I love Jim, he taught me, he said, I don't remember his boss's name at the time. I believe it was Jim Melvin. But he said, you know, Jim, we made the following mistakes. We, we did A, we did B, we did C. And here's what we learned. We learned E, F, and G. And this is how we're going to counter it. And I was floored because I thought he might lie to cover it up, bury the bones. and But he, he was very transparent. And that right there taught me a life lesson. And now you're reinforcing it by telling me how you were transparent with your investors and how that worked out instead of trying to say, hey, you know, we didn't make it. We're going to make it through this. We're not going to need, you know, and cover up what you did. It, there was just there was no. Well, it's not who I am. Well, that's. I mean, that what it comes down to is it's not who I am, and I learned in my first, both from collections and in my first experience in factoring, that if you just tell people what's going on, there's no solution that you can't find. You can find the solution if you know what all the pieces are on the board. You can find the solution if you know what all the pieces are on the board. If you can tell people, that is. Good stuff right there, Melissa. Keep preaching now. Go on now. Don't get shy on me. <laughs> bring it on. Bring it. That's good stuff. Yeah. So my my partner and I spent about a year. Uh, we were hit with a with a big fraud in January 2010. A client had gone and stolen about ninety five thousand uh, dollars in payments from their client. Um, and so we spent about a year doing what we call the postmortem. Mm. You know, what went wrong with each deal? Do we want to stay in this industry? Do we want to, you know, change how we view things? And what came out of that was that she and I had to really assess our individual skill sets and how we interacted with each other. Because I, as the one who was out doing most of the sales and was the path of escalation on risk management, and she kind of filled that, fills that middle piece she is. She made us some assumptions that I might know more either on the front end or the back end about a deal, and so she kind of. I kind of steamrolled her for us to take on. No, I know <laughs> you. Shocking. You. You never. <laughs> so we we refined our underwriting, and part of that was that if for any reason, no matter how strongly I feel about something or how salesy I'm acting at the time, if she's uncomfortable with something, I stand down. Anybody can veto. Yeah. If I'm uncomfortable with how a transaction's going, even if I can't explain it, we stand down. This is, I just want to reemphasize what you just said, because there's two things, two little more, two more nuggets that you're giving out here, is... 
to my business friends out there, when you make a mistake, first of all, acknowledge that you made the mistake. That is one of the hardest things to do. It's kind of like an alcoholic having to acknowledge that you're an alcoholic. It's hard. So acknowledge that you made the mistake and then go back and do the postmortem. See what you did wrong and what you did right and evaluate your actions and come up with changes to improve your performance. That's the so that's a couple nuggets. Yes. Then then one other nugget you just added on behind there, like you just snuck it in there, you snuck it in there, is now you've made these changes. What do you do? What you did was you put in a, conf, a conservative, with a small c, system where anybody could veto. So what that meant was you weren't going to lunge just because one person you know, wanted to. That, that was a good deal to kind of balance out and even out decisions that your company made and it would be made in unison. Yes. Okay, go ahead. I just had to, you know, <laughs> you know, Melissa's dropping all of this knowledge for us and we just, sometimes I feel the need to crystallize it. Right. Not that you needed me, she said it so excellently, but that's the deal. Go ahead. One of the other things that we had to acknowledge during that time and then acknowledge it and then embrace it was that we had this great little company and in and while cash flow might not be our challenge which is you know we were a factor so we help people with cash flow that we have the same issues and challenges as any other business out there it's how we choose to deal with them that sets us apart or helps us to be more successful and as soon as we really embraced that we can bury our head in the sand just like any just like a prospective client can right. we could you know try and avoid a problem because it was uncomfortable we could not ask for help because we were well i was being arrogant no. you know i know no. <laughs> you know, we could we were facing the in many ways we were in the same boat as a lot of the people we were helping or wow. trying to help and that really shifted both how we viewed our role in the company, how we viewed where our company sits in the industry, and the types of people that we wanted to work with. We've been listening to Melissa Donnell tell us how she averted disaster in her fledgling factoring business. Melissa and her partner had to be transparent with their investors and evaluate all the decisions that led to approximately 50% of their deals faltering in order to save their business. I'm Gerald Johnson, and this is MOB, Masterminds of Business. If you want to get in touch with us here at MOB, you can reach us at Sabacon Ideas on Twitter and on Facebook. That's S-A-B-A-C-O-N-I-D-E-A-S. Or visit us on the web at sabacon.net forward slash MOB. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. If you're a mastermind and have a great story to tell or a question to ask, please reach out. We'd love to hear from you. We continue with Miss Donald discussing factoring and the ways in which it can benefit a business. Okay, I could talk to Melissa all day, but if I did, you guys wouldn't get all of the knowledge that she has to offer. So we told us, Hey, how you got started, the first company you worked for, commercial collections, some of the issues about, 
you know, workers' comp and some of the things you had to deal with. Then you told us how you overcame the Great Recession and how you did a postmortem, looked back at what you did, took steps to improve your business. Now tell me, let's go deep digging, deep digging why some companies out there might want to contact a factoring company like yours. So there are there are companies in different places in their business cycle that could use factoring as a healthy way to bridge cash flow. The trick, and it's an art, it's not a science, of of a good factoring deal is really recognizing where they're at in the life cycle of their business. So a company that's going through rapid growth. Okay. They simply have costs today that need to be paid, and they've offered credit terms to their customer, and it's going to take 45 or 60 days for that, in, that invoice to be paid. So they have a need right now for immediate cash. For whatever reason, maybe they've got a, a hiccup in their personal credit, or maybe the company's only a year old, so they don't have two years of profitability for a bank. So bank a bank loan isn't an option. They can look at factoring as a way to generate cash now to meet their growth expenses, which they're going to pay us a fee because we're the ones who are waiting for that invoice to pay. And it generates cash to enable them to, say, buy that equipment or meet their payroll obligations, pay their rent on a larger building because right. they're growing. And so they're in a rapid growth cycle. They're just cash poor. We've we've done factoring deals for acquisition. We had a, a client who had been with us for a couple of years, and they, you know, just regular, they were venture capital backed. The venture capitalist said, no, you know, we're not going to give you any more money, so work it out. They came to us. We worked with them for about two years, and then they wanted to acquire a light company. And so we were able to step in and help them generate a lump sum of cash by utilizing the receivables of the company they were buying. Wow. Okay. The company they're buying's receivables. To generate the cash for them to buy the company. Okay. Let, Let me just break that down. So you gave factoring money. You gave a company money to help them buy another company using the receivables of the company that they were buying to pay for... The company they were buying. The company they were buying. Wow. Go ahead. And that same client came back to us uh, every couple of years for, I don't know, four or five years. We did that tra- that type of a transaction three times for them. Um, and, and it was... I mean, it's all about timing. Yeah. It's about timing. It's about due diligence. It's about making sure that you have copies of contracts and you have full disclosure and, and there has to be trust. So company B's management has to agree up front. It's almost like they're saying, you can take my receivables before I got paid. They they have to right. know the whole. Right. This is kind of it is all about trust. Well, and and if. If, you, if you're doing it right, you're doing your timing so that all of these pieces, execution of contracts, execution of factoring agreement, execution of money movement is happening very quickly. I, I've gotten some gray hair doing those transactions. They're, and they're one-shot deals. You do them once, you're, you're receiving payments on those invoices for 45 or 60 days, everyone shakes hands, and... So I'm just trying to find, figure out the 
company B's owner's reasoning for doing this, not that you would know it, but it's kind of like I'm paying myself. It's like I, I sold my business, but I paid myself for my business because it's my receivables that's paying me. That's the way I don't get it. You, do you understand what you got? I, I understand. I do. And, and I know that it works. <laughs> <laughs> That's great stuff. Selectively. Selectively. Right. I mean, these right. are these are deals that you do every couple of years. Um, they're oftentimes larger than what I would normally do in a regular deal. So I go out into my investors and people I know to bring in the money specifically for those transactions. Wow. Wow. That's yeah, they're 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 great deals when you can get them. You just have to be very careful. Okay. So you told me about a cash uh, uh, a people using factoring for cash, like cash flow needs, right. where you know they have payroll they have to meet, and you know they've offered terms to someone. You told me about a deal to fi- finance a buyout using factoring needs. What other types of reasons would someone use factoring instead of equity? Instead of equity. Instead of equity. You know, Melissa, you are opening my eyes to all sorts of things. So how do you use it instead of equity? Give me an example. So we had a client a couple of years ago. It uh, was a, a group of young kids, <laughs> uh, 20-somethings, who had a startup tech company. I still, to this day, I'm not entirely sure what it was they did because it was all techie. <laughs> Um, and they, when I sat down with them the first time to talk to them about factoring, I, I was blunt and transparent and I asked them, why would you even consider this? You can go line up money. I mean, you guys are a tech company. You've got great reputation. You're well known. You could go get money if you needed it. They had big time clients. Yeah. Big time clients. Big time clients. Big time clients. And (laughs) one of the kids, young men, gentlemen, (laughs) owners, (laughs) Said that told me that they had been offered someone had offered them a million dollars of of capital of working capital in the form of equity that would have been a fifty percent stake in the business. And I went, well, uh, okay, because I can't give you a million dollars. I mean, I can offer you some (laughs) for factoring, and they were very clear that. They were building this company with the intention of selling it, making a saleable asset in three to five years, and to take on a million dollars of, you know, to receive a million dollars for a 50% share diluted their profit when they turned around and sold it. Right. And, you know, I nodded knowingly, not quite sure that I thought it was a great idea, but if they wanted to factor, it was going to be a great factoring deal for us. They were with us for a little over a year. Okay. Um, it was a great relationship. They they had great accounts. They were really fun to work with. And it was a couple years after they left us, I got a call from the young man who had told me about the million-dollar offer to thank me because they had just sold the company for more than $25 million. Wow. And that I had saved them half of that. Half of that. Wow. Now, they had paid us over the course of time we were, they were clients. They had paid us maybe $100,000 in fees. So for $100,000 in fees. We saved them $12 million. $12 million. Now, see, this is why you need factory. This is what well, I, I think what Melissa is telling you here today are the positive reasons companies can use factoring 
if you understand your business fundamentals, your business financials, and your operations really well. There are also negative reasons why companies get into factoring, but we're not, we're not talking about those. But just the gravity for $100,000, where else can you, you give somebody $100,000 and they give you $12.5 million? Yeah. Hey, only at Melissa, well, only at LDI factoring. And, and actually, Gerald, if I may, just really briefly, um, the times that fa- can I address some of the times that factoring doesn't work? Yes, please, okay. definitely. There's a misconception out in the world that the only time people need to use factoring is when they're circling the drain. Mm. And for a long time in the, the industry as a whole, that was our client pool. So we were always afraid of what was going to happen next. You know, is that, you know, this person, this client isn't going to survive. So are we helping them or hurting them to be involved? And I've turned away business because I've recognized that there's nothing that I can do that's going to help them make it through this. I've recommended bankruptcy to people. Mm-hmm. I've recommended, you know, that this is just not, it's it's not going to help you. It's not going to make it as an ongoing yeah. concern. And which is all, and it's all part of the transparency. You know, there are deals that that you can we could take on knowing that in six months the client's probably not going to be in business. We can make money during that time. Mm. But at the end of the day, we're not helping them. Sometimes the best way to help someone is to tell them you can't help them. Yes. To get them to their destination quicker. Yes. You know, it's uh, it's a hard truth. I've had to go through it in my life several times, had to get to my destination quicker. What do you have that you would tell business owners to do to maximize their potential of maybe not having to use a factor or if they have to use one, use one in the appropriate manner? From a from a straight business standpoint, notwithstanding factoring, the best piece of business advice I could ever give someone is when you have an argument between your CPA and someone else who says, oh, write this off, write this off, write this off, take a loss, it's okay, the IRS doesn't care, you're absolutely right. The IRS ultimately isn't going to care as long as you follow the rules. You want bank financing if you can get That's it. That's true. You want bank financing if you can get it. And banks need Income. you to be profitable. So, yes, you don't want to have to pay a lot in taxes and if you're strategizing out the next five years of your business, you need to show profit. You need to show that you're that you're a good risk and can cash flow a loan from a bank. That you can operate a business profitably. Exactly. The other one that I want to add is the trades. I'll trade you my service for you trading me your service. That's the other one where you do these things and then you don't have enough profitability to show. If both people purchased everything, it kind of come out the same anyway. Right. It's just that you show profit. The trade thing, absolutely. It's also cutting your own value and cutting your price to get the job. Uh, it happens a lot in construction, and I've had a lot of people over the years say, oh, it's okay if I lose money on that job. I'll make it up in volume. Right. <laughs> and and no, it's no. really not. <laughs> no, you won't make it up in volume. And and whether it's bank financing or just or needing to use a factor, it's know your margins. Know how much you're actually making 
on any transaction or any contract because it's it's possible depending on it the industry that your margin is 5% or 8%, 10%. Well, whether it's bank financing or factoring, depending on your industry, it might not make sense. That oh, this is for you to factor. So many people don't know what their gross margin is. Right. And and sometimes they know it but they don't know it on a job specific or a product specific or a service specific. And they can lose money on the small things and not even realize it. And that is such a great point that if you're only making 8% as your gross margin, how can you pay for your expenses? So you better have got that gross margin dialed in so that you know exactly what you're making and what your expenses are to handle that. And you have to look at your, you're always looking at your cost of goods. You're looking at the cost of adding staff. You're, you're always looking at the cost in your business. And so often people forget to add in their cost of money. And there's there's price and cost. There's the, the actual cost of having money and there's the price you pay if you don't have access to it. So in some cases, factoring makes sense in the short term, even though it's a more expensive form of financing. Because it gets you over a hump. As a long-term cash management tool, there are very few businesses that it makes sense for. All I can say, Melissa, is wow. I mean, we've just went through so much information for people and learning on how to master their resources for their business. And that factoring is one of those resources. And that Melissa Donald from LDI Growth Partners has integrity and transparency and your interest at the bottom of her heart. And so I just want to take this time to say thank you for well, all the time that you put into this and coming and doing this show. You gave us so much information. Well, and thank you for making me do this. Oh, it, it was my pleasure. That was like factoring porn. <laughs> <laughs> I want to thank Melissa Donald from LDI Growth Partners for taking the time to be with us here today. Here's what I learned after speaking to Melissa. One, it's important that you categorize your employees and independent contractors correctly in order to avoid fines, fees, and additional workers' compensation premiums. There are 20 questions that you can use to determine whether or not someone is an employee or an independent contractor. Please see the show notes for a link to those questions. Number two, the clerical exception rule may cost you a lot of money if you categorize your secretaries and administrative assistants improperly for workers' compensation purposes. Number three, make sure the appropriate people sign all business documents. Failure to do so may result in lost revenue. Make sure it's someone who's accountable and responsible for the documents they are signing. Number four, in addition to improving cash flow, factoring can also be used for business acquisitions and equity in the appropriate circumstances. Number five, be transparent with investors and stakeholders in order to maintain goodwill. Number six, when you make a mistake, and you will make them, take time to do a complete post-mortem in order to approve performance in the future. Number seven, understand the key performance indicators for your business. 
i.e. gross profit percentage. Well, that's it for today. I also want to thank our engineer extraordinaire, Frank Sterling. And if you want to learn more about factoring, please see the show notes for the link to LDI Growth Partners website. And if you want to get in touch with us here at MOB, you can reach us at sabacon.net forward slash MOB or at Sabacon Ideas on Twitter and on Facebook. That's S-A-B-A-C-O-N-I-D-E-A-S. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. And if you like what you hear, please write a review. And remember, until next time, nothing happens unless you make it happen. (laughs) 